so I just got in last night from Wild Goose. Uh, got in around 1.30. Uh, yeah. All right. I mean, I'm having a different experience of that, but I'm glad it's exciting for, for you. Uh, so we still have about 20 or so Grace Pointers who are still there, uh, who um, were making their way back today, I think. And it was such an incredible week. But this, being here with you all and listening to you sing and feeling your energy is just like, I thought the week was already at 10, and now it's at 11. So well done, Grace Point. Uh, we started a series last week called Unconventional, oh, I'm sorry, our youth, I do this every week, I need a cue. Our youth and middle schoolers and high schoolers are free to go downstairs with their secret, secret gestures and handshakes and whatnot. Um, thank you all. So we started a series called Unconventional Wisdom. We started talking about this wisdom that we find in culture, which is generally conventional, which is the stuff everybody knows, right? The stuff everybody agrees with. And what we found is that some of that stuff, like at one point when they thought that, you know, pregnant women should smoke four cigarettes a day and that the, you know, the earth was flat, like those sorts of conventional wisdoms didn't serve us well over time. And when we learned, we let them go. We learned new things and we let them go. And we found in Jesus' teaching a kind of unconventional wisdom, a kind of wisdom that cuts against the grain, a kind of wisdom that calls into question uh, everything we think about, who's first and who's last, who's blessed and who's left out, like all that stuff, Jesus' teaching throws a major wrench in. And so each week during the series, we're going to look at a phrase, um, especially if you've grown up in the South and in the Bible Belt, you've probably heard most of these phrases. Today we're going to look at the phrase, God won't put more on you than you can handle. How many of you have ever been on the receiving end of a couple, God won't put more on you than you can handles. Okay, like almost everybody. How many of you have ever been on the dishing out end of a couple, God won't put more on you than you can handles? Yeah. And so I want to explore that today. I want to look at where I think the idea comes from. And then I want to offer what I think is a better way to think about it. Um, so the, where I think the idea comes from is there's a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm only going to read one verse, but I'll give you sort of the context of it. This writer, Paul, is writing this community, and he's writing them about the wilderness wandering period of the Israelites' history. So after the Israelite slaves were liberated, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And Paul is making some connections to the... And, and by the way, like if you read that section in chapter 10, Paul would have failed seminary. Paul doesn't know how to read the Old Testament like you get taught how to read it in seminary. He's very creative with how he reads the Bible, which I think is a great thing. So Paul is writing about that experience that those Israelites had, and he's sort of connecting it with the experience of these first Christian communities. And he says this. He's talking about being tempted in the wilderness, tested in the wilderness. No temptation has seized you that isn't common for people. But God is faithful. God won't allow you to be tempted beyond your abilities. Instead, with the temptation, God will also supply a way out so that you will be able to endure it. Essentially, Whatever you're going through, other people have gone through it, and you're not going through it alone. God is going to provide a way for you to endure it, to, to get out of it. Now, one interesting thing is that this, the word that's translated temptation actually can be translated as test or trial or some sort of like proving process. So when Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, he's actually praying, do not lead us to the time of trial or testing. Uh, which has a little different ring to it, right? So whatever Paul means here, he's talking about an experience, and he says it's, God won't allow you to be tested, tempted, whatever, beyond your ability. And you can see how out of that phrase, you might draw something out that says, God won't put more on you than you can handle. But there are some assumptions at work in that statement that I think are really problematic. And the first one is this, that God is doing it. 
Like that God is the one going around putting things on people. Right? I think that's a problem. I, I think that the idea that God needs us or wants us to prove ourselves somehow is a problem. Right? I mean, when, when you see that, in, that dynamic in parent-child relationships where the child is always having to prove him, him or herself to the parent, like that is a toxic, unhealthy relationship. Are you with me? And so like this idea that God's like, I, I just want to see what they're going to do. I, wanna, I want you to prove. Do you love me? Prove it. Right? And I think the other thing is that, that built into that is that God somehow needs our suffering. Like that God benefits somehow if we have a hard time and we endure it well. That God's like, hey, that does something for me. And I think around that phrase, that God won't put more on you than you can bear, is a built-in uh, shame trap. A built-in guilt trap, right? Because when you're struggling and somebody comes up to you, and I believe everybody who says this is well-intended. Would you agree? I don't, I don't think anybody's like, watch, I'm going to ruin their day. God won't put more on you than you can handle. Like, I don't think that's what's actually happening there. I think most people are really well-intended, but when you come up to somebody who's struggling and they feel like they're about to be crushed by the weight of whatever they're going through, and you say, but look, God must think you can handle an awful lot. God wouldn't put more on you than you can handle. Which, do you ever just feel like, I just wish God had less respect for me? Like, I wish, I wish God believed in me just a little less, because this feels like it's harder than I can process and handle. And I think that there's this guilt and shame that are, are just kind of connected to that. And we start getting into the world of, well, maybe I should be doing better. Right? Because after all, God won't put more on me than I can handle. So maybe the problem here is me. Maybe, maybe I, I'm not faithful enough. Maybe I don't believe enough. Maybe I'm not somehow doing enough. And there's all this. So not only are you processing the trial test and whatever that thing is you're going through, now you've got this inner critic voice that's telling you all the reasons why you're failing and all the reasons why you should feel guilty and ashamed of it. Now, I think that some of this idea, I mean, if we're going to be really honest, some of this perspective about God putting things on people does come from our tradition. It comes from not only our tradition, but it comes from our text. So there's a, a couple stories. One is found in Genesis 22. and In Hebrew, it's known as the Akidah, and we call it in English the binding of Isaac. Anybody ever heard that story before? Oh, if you haven't, you're in for a real treat. So here's the story. Abraham and his wife begin a family when they're 100, and she, he's 100 and she's 90 years old exactly when you're planning to begin your life together. Um, and they have a baby, and they, they try to have a baby and couldn't have a baby, and then they have this miraculous baby that God allows them to have. Name him Isaac, and when Isaac gets a little bit bigger, Abraham has this experience where God, the God character in the story, says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and this is how like, the God character in the story does it. Take your son, your only son, that you love, as if Abraham's going, which, what? Your only son. I want you to take him to a mountain. I want you to build an altar. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice, as a gift to me. And Abraham, do you know what his next step is? Okay. So he loads up a donkey, takes some servants, takes his son, and they're walking along. And it's this brutal story where his, Isaac's going, uh, Dad, what are we sacrificing up on the mountain? I don't see an animal. And Abraham's like, I got this. And like they're walking along. They go up on the mountain. Abraham builds, like I think Isaac helps, which is the most cruel thing. Build the altar. He lays Isaac on it. And, and a lot of people think Isaac in this story was meant to be 25, 30 years old. So he's not like a, a child. 
And he's like, Isaac, get on the altar. And this kid's like, okay. Like nobody's asking the right questions in this story, right? Like, why do you want me to kill my kid? And the kid's like, okay. And he hops up on the altar. And like Abraham has his hand drawn back. And he hears a voice that calls his name. And he sees a ram in the thicket. And he's like, oh, thank goodness. And so he goes over and he gets the ram and he kills and offers the ram. And when we read this story, we read it as God tests Abraham. Because God wants to see how legit Abraham's faith is going to be. Because God doesn't know this. Right? God doesn't know exactly what Abraham's going to do. So God has to test him. Now, I, I think that is a really difficult story. And I could, we could talk about that. And maybe we'll do a talk on that at some point. Because I think it's an important story to reframe. Um, but I actually think what that story is doing. I mean, do you notice Abraham doesn't question it? There is no... You want me to do what with who? It's okay. Because in Abraham's frame, that is the kind of thing that God's asked you to do. And his impulse to say yes was because that is what he'd been taught his entire life. When the gods demand it, you give it. Because you have to keep the gods on your side. And what if we saw this story not as God testing Abraham? What if we saw this story as, a, as Abraham being challenged to let go of the gods that demand things from us to embrace the God who provides everything for us? That's a very different understanding of God, isn't it? God doesn't need Isaac. God provides the ram. God doesn't need Abraham to bring anything to the table. There's something beautiful about that. But when we read it in this older sort of fr- framework... It makes it seem like God's like, you know, I wonder what he'd do if I told him to kill his son. I bet he'd do it. Let's see. Right? Like, oh my gosh. what kind of, if, if, if we were talking parent-child relationship here, and a parent was testing and, and like psychologically twisted ways, which is what this is, like, what would we do? I hope we would get on the phone and call social services and say, you will not believe what these weirdos are doing. You have to stop them. Right? Because that's not how you treat human beings. And, and when, we, when we cast that large and we say that's what God is ultimately like, that God, uh, for fun, enjoyment, to fulfill some need and emptiness in God's heart, God just needs to see what we'll do if, when put in situations. It's like we're little lab rats. And God's the laboratory minder. What do you call that? Scientist? I don't Words are hard. But <laughs> the person who's making the rats do the thing, right? And... And when, when, when one rat dies, it's like, bring in another one. It doesn't matter, right? Like, that's what we create God in that sort of image. And I don't think that's right. There's another story about a guy named Job. Looks like his name is Job. Um, and Job is, uh, the story begins, it's, it's actually an old story. And the story begins with this conversation between a, a God character and a character named the accuser. Um, it's the phrase hasatan in Hebrew, which means is the Satan in English. And it just means like the accuser, somebody who's here to accuse and so the accuser presents, he like works for God in this story. He's like, he's like middle management. And he appears before God and, he's, and God's like, hey, hey, have you seen Job? Woo, Job, that dude is living right. He does everything he's supposed to do. And I am so proud of Job. I bet you couldn't make Job back off his faith no matter what you did to him. And the accuser's like, oh, really? He says, I think the problem is the only reason Job is faithful to you is because look at all of his stuff and look at his family and everything's perfect. Let me screw around with all that and I bet you that Job will completely deny you and will curse you and then die. A fun story. And the story is like, it seems like that 
Job's experience where he loses all of his kids, he loses all of his stuff, he's afflicted with boils. This is a guy who's done nothing different. And now he's the, the middle part of a cosmic sort of game between God character and the accuser character, and Job is sort of just at the mercy of their little bet they're making about what he's going to do. And when we read the story, and the story of Job ends up with Job just sort of being like, um, excuse me, this isn't fair, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and what's powerful about the story, I, I think we read it as trying to give us some divine perspective on suffering. And I actually don't think it is. I, I think that this is a human story, and they're wrestling with the same question we do. Why do people suffer? And they're trying to come to terms with why that may happen. I don't believe God is like the God character in the book, at the beginning of the book of Job. I don't think God makes bets with other semi-deities to see what we'll do in any given situation. I, I think that's actually an unhealthy view of God that needs to be left in the past. A God who just messes with us to see what we'll do um, isn't a God worth believing in. Are you with me? Like there are some gods that just need to die. And that's one of them. And I think what we're dealing with, too, is we're dealing with an, a, a very different worldview. We're de- dealing with an ancient worldview that saw God as the cause of everything. When it rains, guess who did that? God. And now we know that meteorologists make it rain. And so we've, <laughs> we've grown, right? Um, we, 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 everything was put onto God. If a volcano erupts, we've offended the deity, right? This is not a Christian thing or a Jewish thing. This is a human thing way, way back. We were doing this, and we were saying, we've got to do something to sort of get that God happy with us again and get that God on our side, so let's start offering things, and we'll start killing stuff and somehow see if that's the thing that will appease the deity. It's a very ancient worldview, right? So if you were sick, and we're going to look at a text next week that's sort of about this. If you got sick, you must have done something wrong to offend the gods. If it doesn't rain on your crops, you must have offended the gods. Can you imagine what it was like? You remember the eclipse that happened a couple years ago? Can you imagine what that was like for our ancient ancestors? You know they were just running and screaming because they had no idea what was happening. The gods were angry because the sun has been hidden in the middle of the day, right? And we can't fault them for that. They did not have the information. They did not have a telescope. They just didn't have any of that. And so to look back on them and go, primitive losers, like, no, 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 they were doing what they could at the time. They had an ancient worldview, a worldview where God was the source and cause of every event that happened in human history. Now, some people still believe this. I have family members who believe that God gives them parking spots at Walmart. I don't think that's true. Um, they do, and I'm, you know, whatever works for you, I guess. But I, I think this ancient, this ancient worldview of God being sort of the fairy godmother who pops in and out and bippity-boppity-boo stuff and then... Lee, like, I think that that's sort of at the core of this, right? God is the one doing all the stuff. And our experience in the world, in that worldview, is that we are just sort of victims and whims at the whimsy of God. That the gods can do, and if you read like Greek uh, mythology, what you find is the, God, the people are just at the mercy of the gods. If the gods love you, you're set. If the gods don't love you and they're not happy with you, you are in big trouble. And what has happened in a couple thousand years is our understanding and image of God has evolved. Right? How many of you have ever evolved on something? Let me me use the old school. How many of you all have ever changed your mind? It's the word repent. You've changed your mind on something? I change my mind on stuff all the time. How many of you eat something now you wouldn't eat when you were a kid? How many of you that was green beans? Okay, a couple of us. We need to start a support group for people who used to hate green beans. 
Um, how many of you have ever changed your opinion on a social issue? How many of you have ever changed your opinion on a theological issue? Right? And that happens over time. Our collective understanding of God is still unfolding. That doesn't mean that whatever the word God means, it doesn't mean that that reality is changing. But what it means is as we're growing as a species, we're becoming more aware of how small our idea of this reality called God has been and how that actually we have shaped God in our image way too many times in human history. Right? Is it Anne Lamott who says you can tell you've made God in your image when God hates all the same people you do? Right? I mean, that tends to be what we do, right? We decide who we hate, and then we say God is against them. And we have to get rid of those people in the name of our God. And so, thankfully, our ho- hopefully, we'll continue to evolve. I hope that my kids and grandkids look back on stuff I believe right now and say, huh, primitive. Right? I promise you they're going to. They're going to look back on the fact that we eat meat. They're going to say, can you believe those barbaric people eating meat? Right? They're going to be things. We're not the final end. We're not, we're not the completed picture. We're just part of the evolutionary process of a new understanding and experience of what the word God means in the world. All right? So here's a few things I want to say in response just to this, God won't put anything on you that you can handle. I don't think God puts anything on us. I don't think God puts anything on us. I don't think God's like one day going, hey, you know what? Let's mess with him and just see what he does. And usually I, when I believe that happens is when I'm at a self-checkout. Because it always goes poorly. And I'm like, is this, maybe my theology is wrong and this is God just going, he's going to do it. He's going to go back to a self-checkout again after what happened last time. He's not learning. I don't think God puts, I don't think God goes around going, you know what that person needs? That person needs to deal with cancer. Let's give them cancer. You know what that person needs? That person needs some sort of debilitating physical pain. Let's go give them that and see what they, let's just see what they do with it. It might be fun. That's not a God, that's a bully. I don't think God goes around putting stuff on us. I think life happens. I think life happens. And sometimes it happens in weird ways that it feels like somebody's dumping it all on us, right? Like you get a flat tire and then a speeding ticket and then, you know, the kitchen sink breaks or something. Like, and you're like, what have I done? You're on this rock hurtling through the universe. That's what you've done. It's not in response to anything you've done. Now, sometimes things happen in response to our choices, right? Of course, but there is no divine being who's going, I'm going to see what they do here. I'm going to put this on them and see how they handle it. Oh, they handled it well. Let's heap some more on, and I want to find this person's breaking point. Like That's not a divine that we need to spend time with. That's not the, the God I see in Jesus. That's not the God I see in the great wisdom teachers of all religious faiths who are pointing us to something beyond that kind of God. Uh, next, I, I don't think God needs us to prove anything. God doesn't need you to prove anything to God. God doesn't need you to prove that you believe in God enough. God doesn't need you to prove that you're moral enough. God doesn't need you to prove that you're intelligent enough, that you're worthy enough. God doesn't need you to prove anything. There's this beautiful quote by Richard Rohr that I often just come back to, especially on days when I'm struggling to feel like it's my job to prove something to everyone. Anybody else have those days where you feel like you're waking up and now you're just proving to everybody why you should take up space or why you should exist or why you should have an opinion? Uh, On those days, I love this quote. There is nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I am who I am and it's enough. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to protect. I am who I am and that's enough. So I'm going to give that back out to you in little chunks and I want us to all say that together. And I, I want you to, don't say it to your neighbor. 
Let's say it to us. Let's talk. You have permission to talk to yourselves in a, a public space in a room full of people, and nobody's going to question it. All right, so here we go. There is nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I am who I am, and it's enough. You, right now, as you are, are enough. You will not be enough when you believe enough, when you're faithful enough, religious enough, generous enough. You right now, wherever you are, however you are, you're enough for God. God doesn't need you to prove anything. That's great. It's almost like we have good news, right? Goodness. You don't need to prove anything to God. You don't need to measure up. You don't need to somehow become worthy because you already are. I think one of the detriments that the Christian tradition has brought into the world is all this I'm unworthiness that people feel. You are made in the image of the divine. The divine lives inside of you. Every time you walk around, it's like God is in the room. You have nothing to prove to anyone, even yourself. You exist, and you're a gift to the world, and there's nothing to prove, earn, or explain. And finally, I think the thing that this text in Corinthians was getting at when it says that God will sort of always provide a way to bear up and get out of it. I think what, the, the way that hit me uh, was that it's ultimately about choices. So here's the thing. In this life, you, Jesus actually said this. In this life, you will have trouble. Right? That was Jesus' statement. He falls with, but I take heart, I've overcome the world, so good. But it doesn't rule out the first part. In this world, you're going to have trouble. That's just the fact. You're going to have trouble. The only thing we have sometimes is the ability to choose our response. So when somebody wounds us, we do not have the uh, ability to choose to make them to feel bad about it and choose to make them seek to make amends and choose to make them feel sorry about it. And we can try guilt and we can try passive aggression, right? But ultimately, we don't get to control that. There's so much that's outside of our control. The one thing I get to control in any and every situation is what I do with it, how I respond to it, how I engage it. And I think that's what the text is getting at. What it's trying to say is that when you are in a bind and you're going through a rough patch, there is wisdom to be drawn on to figure out what your next step is, to figure out what the next right choice is, to figure out how to move forward. And I've found that sometimes I don't come up with that on my own. My general my general, when I'm alone, response is something sarcastic and to get back at people, right? But when you allow the wisdom of others on the journey to come into your life and you begin to realize, oh, I have options. I don't have to punch somebody because they punched me. I don't have to hate somebody because they hate me. I don't have to, I don't have to, go, to, the, I don't have to go to that level. I don't have to keep this volleying back and forth. I can make a different choice. And the reality of testing, the reality of temptation, the reality of going through moments that feel like uh, we're under trial in some way, those are, those are going to be part of life, and I don't think there's any way to avoid them. Uh, I think even if you just sealed yourself like in a, in a bubble, there would be trouble, because that's what happens in the world. And the only thing that we are responsible for is our choice. What will we choose? How will we choose to respond to this situation, to this circumstance, to this difficulty? Will we choose to allow this to open us up to new possibilities in the world? Will we choose this to close us off? Will we allow this to somehow make us more bitter and cynical and 
vindictive or we allow it to maybe open us up to a, a more hopeful possibility and vision of the world. Those are the kinds of choices we get to make. Does God help? Not that, that's another week. Does God not put more on us than we can handle? No way. God is way better than that. God is not going around dumping stuff on you to see what you'll do with it. The place I find God is in the place where somebody's been so hurt and wounded and a group of people come around them and embrace them and tell them, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. We've got your back. That's where you find God. Not in putting stuff on people to see what they'll do, but not too much. But in the joining together and the lifting up of people who are in pain and experiencing loss and grief and agony. Are you with me? So I don't know where you are. I don't know what your struggle is right now. I don't know what you're going through, where your journey is taking you. I do know this. God, God's not just messing with you. And this reality called God, I believe, is with you and in you right here, right now. And so as you sort through, as I sort through the choices that we face in front of us on any given day in any given difficulty, may we open ourselves up to that trust that there is a reality that carries us and holds us up. And that there are other human beings around us and maybe that reality wants to speak to us in their words and in their embrace and in their support. So if that's where you are today and you just need somebody, please don't leave without saying, I need somebody. Because <laughs> there are a lot of somebodies in this room. And a lot of, um, this is a hugging bunch of people, y'all. Uh, so uh, wherever you are on this journey, you know, it's not that God, God won't put more on you than you can handle because God won't put anything on you. God's dream is to liberate and remove everything from us that weighs us down. Let's pray. God, source of life, ground of being, breath that fills our lungs. May we continue to allow ourselves to leave behind images of what that word means, God, that are unhelpful and unproductive, that are damaging and wounding, that cause us to lose sight of the fact that we are made in the image of the divine and that we carry the divine with us everywhere we go. Any image or concept or doctrine that would make us feel like we are somehow unworthy and unlovable, that would make us feel somehow like we have something to prove, something to earn, that there's only so much goodness and grace and love in the universe and we have to grasp our little bit or we're going to miss out. May we continually evolve into a much more expansive view of a God who loves every single one of us and sees us right now in this moment as enough. Yeah, we got stuff to work on. We got things that need to change. We all are pursuing the path of transformation, but our acceptance and belovedness and enoughness do not depend on us ever getting that right. And may we internalize that and trust that in the very depths of our being. We're grateful for this community that gathers to love and support and embrace one another. We offer this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.